the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30, we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. On February 15, 2014, Meg Conley spent her Saturday by her father's side. Less than three weeks ago, doctors had told him that his leukemia had returned. This time it would kill him. Now as his lungs labored under the complications of cancer cells multiplying in his body, Conley sat beside her father, holding on to his bare ankle and recalling that she had not touched that part of his body since she was a toddler. Memories of sitting on Dad's foot, legs wrapped around his ankle while he stomped around the house, washed over her. She was also thinking about how two days before checking into the hospital, Her father had boarded a plane to meet a client who was about to pull their account from his business. He was self-employed, and he knew that after he died, the business he left behind was the only thing standing between his family and their descent into poverty. In his last days, that book of accounts felt as vital to him as the book of scripture he kept at his bedside. But the client with whom he had spent one of his last 19 days of life pulled the account one week after his death, just in time for the funeral. Connolly swore that if she ever found herself in her father's place, she would find a way to stay off the plane and with her family. I didn't blame my dad for that wasted day, she writes, but I promised I would never let it happen to me. Mary of Bethany made a similar promise. She would not waste time. She had heard the rumors. The Jerusalem establishment wanted Jesus dead. Religious leadership was worried about people crowning Jesus king and rebelling against Roman occupiers. The words the high priest had pronounced in the council were now whispered in the countryside. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Jesus had withdrawn from public life to a city called Ephraim, 
But now, six days before the Passover holiday, he and his disciples were in Bethany for dinner. Mary must have wondered, will this be the last time that I see him? And so in the middle of the meal, while Martha served and Lazarus made conversation, Mary appeared with almost a pound of perfume. Like Meg Connolly touching her father's ankle before his death, Mary bathed Jesus' feet in the fragrant oil. Although she didn't say a word, her grief was loud and clear. Writer Jamie Anderson has said that grief is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. When a friend or family member dies, all that unspent love gathers in the corners of your eyes, in the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with nowhere to go. Because the future was not promised, because Jesus might be dead within days, Mary chose not to withhold her love. What about the silent voices in that room? What about Mary? I mean, what about Mary's sister, Martha, her brother, Lazarus, disciples like Peter and John? Did they make the connection that Jesus understood that evening? That this perfume was meant for preparing a body for burial? that Mary was doing now what she might not be able to do later. That must, they must have felt the tension in the room, fear about the threats against Jesus, anxiety about the week ahead. I wonder, did they let themselves feel sadness too? This past week, it feels as though our country is reckoning with sadness. Tricia Law Williford put it best in her open letter to teachers. We teach students that every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But your ending just got interrupted. Everyone's ending just got interrupted. Not just the ending of the school year or the workday, not just canceling graduation ceremonies or postponing weddings. The end of a pregnancy has changed. Grandparents can't travel to hold their tiny, precious grandchildren. The end of a life has changed. Loved ones can't make it can't make it to the bedsides of the dying. No one knows when the funerals will be. So many, many funerals. As we staggered at the hundreds of deaths in Italy, as U.S. cases began to explode, as businesses 
closed their doors, we lost our collective sense of safety. We're not just sad and anxious about the present. We are grieving the death of the future. Like the half-empty bed that greets a surviving spouse upon awakening, morning after morning, each day is challenging us to live differently than we have for years. Like a daughter sitting beside her father's hospital bed, listening to his labored breathing, we are watching the future slip away from us. Grief can take so many forms. Maybe you're in a fog. You can't concentrate or think straight. You're forgetting how to maintain connections or follow through on your work. Maybe you're stuck in despair, refreshing Facebook and Twitter and the CDC website again and again, unable to break away from the dread. Maybe you're angry. Anger, after all, is one of the classic five movements of grief, along with depression, denial, bargaining, and acceptance. I find that I'm getting angry at small things. The other day, I yelled at my husband for taking a phone call at lunchtime. We don't usually eat lunch together. But grief reasons that if you can establish normal, then you'll be fine. Normal is safe. Normal is happy. Normal means that if you eat lunch with your spouse at noon, then... Everything isn't falling apart. Jesus knows grief. Of course he does. He is love, made flesh and bone and blood, and grief is love's turf. So don't be surprised when he rises to Mary's defense. Leave her alone, he snaps. She is being real. She is acknowledging the fear and sadness hanging over the room. She is demonstrating what vulnerable strength looks like. And what is more, Mary is showing what God's love looks like. God loves the world extravagantly, massaging into creation a lavish grace like the most expensive and fragrant oil. God loves the world fiercely with a heart that cracks open with ugly, tearful sobs. God's love is over-the-top, demonstrative, even embarrassing. This is the love of a father who throws aside decorum to embrace his shameful son. This is the love of a mother who rages when the children she taught how to walk wander into danger. This is love undaunted by death threats, love willing to risk crucifixion.
The love of the Holy One is extravagant. It is not economic. In fact, it flips traditional economics on its head. Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts? Can you imagine that? It's not just good news for those of us who are struggling to pay our bills. Deuteronomy reminds the covenant people that open-handed generosity is the very thing that will lead to the Lord your God's blessing you in all you do and work at. Costly love for neighbors connects us with the ungrudging and unlimited grace of God. I wonder if Judas realized Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy to him. You will always have the poor among you. I doubt it. The spirit of God's generosity is at odds, complete odds, with Judas's focus on not enough. What if Mary had sold the perfume for a year's wages? Don't you think that Judas would have approached that money with the same tight-fisted attitude? Just imagine Judas dividing 300 denarii into equal portions. After all, fair is fair. And determining who were the deserving poor and reserving some for overhead expenses. Yes, of course. There's not enough to go around Judas reasons. Some have to go without. And all of a sudden, that logic doesn't sound all that different from the establishment's plot to take out Jesus. It's better for one man to die in order to save the whole nation. Here's my takeaway. Here's my takeaway from Mary's expensive outpouring of grief. This won't be the last time her love for Jesus opens her heart. Her love for Jesus will lead her to care for the people Jesus cared about. It's true of Mary what the nurse said to Jan Richardson just after her husband Gary died. Jan had placed her hand on Gary's chest, his lifeless chest, and remarked how strange it was to feel a heartbeat, knowing that it was only her own pulse. The nurse said, His heart beats in you now. So so true. So what about us? What about us who mourn as COVID-19 undoes our endings? We could say, yes, the future we had imagined has died. It has succumbed to a strange new virus. But the heart of that future is alive in us still, a future where children learn and grow and have enough to eat, 
a future where young people stay in the Finger Lakes to open up restaurants and work the fields and make wine and music. A future where everyone gets by. We could try living into that. I don't think that would hurt. We could also go a step further because Jesus' heart beats in the chest of anyone who loves him. We could flip on its head the conventional way people understand Jesus' words. You will always have the poor among you. Instead of an excuse to consider some people expendable in an economy that serves the stock market, it would be a rallying cry for God's people to be as generous as their Lord. We could make the flourishing of our local economy a priority, a ministry, not for the least of reasons that this pandemic will create a whole lot more poor among us if we do not open our hands. In short, we could make God's abundance, God's grace upon grace showered on the world, embodied in Jesus Christ, our witness to our neighbors. The writer of The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, was a French pilot in World War II, stationed in North Africa. In his time there, he became friendly with several members of a local Bedouin tribe, rough and hardy desert nomads who had survived for years on so little. On one occasion, Saint-Exupéry was able to fly some of his Bedouin friends to France when he went back for a visit. He expected his companions would be wowed at all the wonders of the modern world. The Eiffel Tower, automobiles, a massive train system. But the Bedouins looked upon all of these with a studied indifference. Only one thing provoked awe and wonder from the visitors. A massive waterfall they flew over in the French Alps. And what particularly amazed them was that the waterfall never stopped. They had measured their lives in the desert by water. How much water was left in the canteen? How many miles to go to the next oasis? How far the camels could go? And here before them was this gushing, endless cascade of God's abundance. Of this, Saint-Exupéry wrote, they stood in silence, mute, solemn, as they beheld the unfolding of a ceremonial mystery. That which came roaring at the belly of the mountain was life itself, 
The flow of a single second of this waterfall would have resuscitated whole caravans mad from thirst. Here, God was manifesting God's own self. It would not do to turn one's back on this wonder of wonders. Our witness to God's overflowing abundance has never been more vital than in these tumultuous times when people's hope chokes on immense grief. So, friends, like Mary, let us use our grief to tell the truth. Because we belong to God, we belong to each other. Because we belong to God, we can trust that when we share, there will be enough. Because the Spirit breathes in our own breathing, because Jesus' heart beats in our chests, we will not be afraid. We will speak aloud our sadness. We will act aloud our love. We will rise to this challenge sustained by the grace of God. Rejoicing in this grace, let our lives of gratitude give glory to God, from whom every family on earth takes its name, who has pitched a tent among us, who sends us to the ends of the earth. Amen.